All right, so we're stepping in. We just finished Romans. Last week was our last week in Romans. It was a great time, 31 weeks going through the book of Romans with little breaks here and there. Uh, honestly, it was a fantastic experience to mine the scriptures for uh, these riches, just depths of understanding of the gospel and who God is and how he affects us. It was fantastic. We're going to take some time, three weeks, uh, to do a, a vision series. And we do this a couple of times a year. And I just wanted to, like Jeff was sharing on the way, and I thought it was really appropriate, identifying uh, the week that we carry into a Sunday morning. It's different person to person. Your experiences coming into this room, your, uh, your sense of readiness to hear things coming into this room, you carry different things. And the reality is a vision series for some people, ready to hear it, yes, I want to see forward, I want to look at what's ahead, I want to know what's coming, and I want to be built up and encouraged and inspired to chase that down. Other people are so feeling the weight of today that it's hard to think about tomorrow. And I want to encourage you uh, just to, to think of how a vision series connects, how it fits, how it helps. It's not a felt theme. Usually vision is not a felt theme. Looking at the future of where we're going and why we're going there is not a felt theme. Uh, a couple of months ago, some of the European, my kids are into soccer. My boys, my kids, all of them are into soccer, except Andrew, who really hates it, but that's fine. Um, and a couple of months ago, a lot of the European teams were coming through and were playing in the U.S., and we got a chance to go to where the Galaxy played. We saw uh, AC Milan play Juventus at uh, this Dignity Health Park, worst stadium name. But uh, Dignity Health Park, we went and watched. And it's kind of inexpensive, and when you sit in these, it's not like Dodger Stadium where you're a mile and a half from the action. It's like you're, you're like the guy's taking a corner kick, and you could say, hey, and he would hear you. Like, it's that close. And so we go and we watch this, and um, over the next couple of days after that game, uh, I watched my, my boys just out in the backyard, just like kicking and playing and practicing. I watched Rosie like tying her cleats on. She's six years old and playing her first season of ASO ever. She was tying her cleats on and trying her shoe guards on and just like holding her ball. She didn't know what to do with it, but she was enjoying just thinking about her future. And there's something about seeing what it looks like for us down the road that changes what we're doing today. Because we know that you don't just see the future and hope you get there. When you see the future, you start to realize that it actually takes intentionality and effort to move towards that. I want to tell you our future. Open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to show you the future that we envision for you. I will tell you this. We are not an agendaless church. Uh, for the last, I don't know, 10 years, it's gotten really popular to talk about love without an agenda. And think about that for just a minute. Do you love your kids without an agenda? No, you do not. You have a specific agenda for your children. You want them to walk with Jesus. You want them to be men and women of character. You want them to know and understand the world and how they can thrive in it. You have a complete agenda for your children. As a church, do we exist without an agenda? No. We have something we are working towards. We're not just twiddling our thumbs and showing up week in and week out with no intentionality and no direction. We are here to form something specific in each and every one of you, myself included, because we see that we're here for a purpose and we want to excel in that purpose. We want to thrive in that purpose. We want to do everything we can with everything that we have to maximize our service to our king. And so we work hard after that. That's what we're after as a church. Every Sunday, every prayer meeting, every leadership meeting, every community group, it is all designed to thrive and strive for this purpose, this agenda, this reason that we're here. And we see this big picture played out in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. This is Paul writing to the Ephesian church, who he loves, by the way spent three years with them, and when he was done ministering to this church, he got together with the others on the beach at Miletus, and they got down on their knees and wept together because they knew they were not going to see each other again. Paul writes this letter back to this church that he loves dearly. He says, he, talking about Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. When you look at that list, you can just see Jesus in each one of those. Jesus, the great apostle. 
Jesus the great evangelist, Jesus the great prophet, Jesus the great shepherd, and Jesus the great teacher, the rabbi. These are the gifts of Jesus distributed to the church to draw them to maturity. So Jesus gave himself in gift form to the church for this reason, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, and that word is not masculine, it's personhood, it's designed to draw you into the full maturity of your adulthood, your, your personhood in Christ, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, what would you look like if Jesus took you over completely? The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What is your maximum potential as a human being if you were to submit yourself completely to Jesus? So that we may no longer be children, again with the agenda, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. There's a steadfastness to the people that are being shaped in the church of Jesus Christ. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is Paul's agenda for the Ephesian church. It's Jesus' agenda for the Ephesian church. And as we read and receive that, we look at that and say, this is what God is doing here. This is what he's doing here. He's equipping the saints for the work of ministry to grow to maturity, to be filled with all the fullness of Christ so that when we live in this life, we are literally spiritually on fire for Jesus Christ, an unstoppable force bringing the name of Jesus to our community and to the nations. Today's a message about what would it look like if we said yes to that? What would it look like if we said yes to what Jesus wants to do in us and through us? Last December, I uh, took a day. I was feeling, I'll just take a little bit of a personal story, uh, feeling a bit of um, sort of the rudderless movement. So things were going, but you just sort of feel like I don't have any control over the ship and I, I don't exactly know where I'm going, just internally, personally. And uh, Kristen and I were talking and she said, what would, what would help? And I was like, honestly, a day in the desert. And so I got in my car, and we, I left at you know, 5 in the morning, and I drove out to uh, Red Rocks uh, outside of Mojave. I parked my car, and I started wandering in the desert, just walking and talking to the Lord. I took my journal, took my Bible, took some water, and, and a snack. <laughs> and a, a stick for the snakes. Um, and I just started wandering in the desert. And asking the Lord a thousand questions. And when I would hear his voice, I would write. And when I would have thoughts, I would write. And when I would think about people, I would jot their names down. And I just started asking the Lord to help bring shape to the future. And as I was out there, some things started to brew. And I, I'll be honest, this is not because I'm a pastor. It's not because I'm a leader. It's not because I'm a more godly person. I think if any one of you were to give the Lord time to speak to you, you would start to hear his voice in increasing measure. But I felt the Lord speaking to me, starting to mold and shape the season that we are in as a church and the season that I'm in as an individual man and the season that my family's in. I felt the Lord start to bring shape and form to that. So over the last nine months, we've been fleshing that out family's been fleshing that out. I've been fleshing that out personally, and as a church, we've been fleshing that out. From a perspective of the church, I felt like the Lord gave us four words to press into, four things that, uh, that we're going to mark this season. That he wants us to grow as a devoted people, a dependent people, a stirring people, and a sent people. And each one of those words 
marked the discipleship that I felt like I saw the Lord leading us into. That if we're going to do this on purpose, if we're going to build something that, uh, that the Lord is going to use to affect this community for the gospel of Jesus, it's going to take his people saying yes to his agenda in their lives. So today I want to take a little bit of time and I'm going to talk about each of those four words or phrases. And then I want to paint a picture of what would it look like if we say yes to what Jesus is going to do in us as a church. What is that future look like? What is that big picture that we might be walking towards? So first, let's start about, let's start talking about being a devoted people. A devoted people. And I want to be a bit blunt with you guys because honestly there's no reason not to be. And so I'm going to say the things that I think I should say. And if they don't feel comfortable, I think that is part of growth. I think that's part of us actually kind of figuring things out together. When I think of who we are as a church, one of the great things that I feel like we can grow in is our devotion to God. Our devotion to God. The concept of devotion, it's spoken about in a number of times in the New Testament, and Jesus uses it to describe the singular focus on God as opposed to a divided focus, or uh, a lot of times people will talk about syncretism by bringing other things in and saying God and. God and this, God and that, and starting to try and build a life where it's like, oh yeah, I can be fully focused on God, and fully focused on this, and fully focused on that. I've got the capacity to be fully focused on lots of things at the same time, and that's a lie. And Jesus calls out that lie in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in one hand. Jesus is trying to help people understand, look, if you think you have the capacity to be devoted in multiple spaces, understand that you're wrong. And over time, you will determine, you will see that your divided devotion produces the results that you're not looking for. Resentment, frustration, misaligned priorities, exhaustion from chasing lots of things down, doesn't work. So the idea of devotion is actually starting to focus in our attention on the thing that deserves our attention. Actually starting to choose with intentionality, what am I here for? What has my devotion, my dedication? The book of Acts takes the early church and starts to tell us about it. This is after Jesus died and rose again. His people were witnesses to the resurrection. That does something to hone your devotion, I'll tell you that. When you witness the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, it does something to hone your devotion. And it tells us in Acts 1.14 that they devoted themselves to prayer. It tells us in Acts 2.42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. This church was zeroing in on the thing that mattered the most. I saw the resurrected Christ, the story of God, manifested in front of me. You have my attention. You have my affection. You have my devotion. Let's go. Throughout the book of Psalms, we see this picture of devotion. Psalm 62.1 says this, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Now, I will say this. Psalms are poetic. They're wisdom literature. Sometimes these things are aspirational. Sometimes they are the, the psalmist, often David, writing to describe how he wants to frame his life, how he wants to shape his life. But we know that David was a man after God's own heart. We also know that David was an adulterer and a murderer. So this is a man that had some work to do. And he would write these things, bringing his attention and his affection back to the Lord. Psalm 83, 18 says that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Psalm 86, 10, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Now, some of our lives need to actually circle around that last phrase right there. You alone are God. We might not think of idolatry in our current format and, and say, yeah, we worship money. 
I worship money. I, most of us would not say that. But when we think about solutions to the problems that we're facing, money is usually the answer. Typically, if we want to buy a house and we can't buy a house, it's not you alone or God. It's honestly a down payment in this moment is God. A lower interest rate is God. Finding the right house in the market at the right time, catching the downswing, that, that, that's the thing that has my affection and my attention. It's the solution to my problem. And so we have a hard time saying you alone are God when we start thinking about all of these other things. When we're uh, feeling alone in our life and we don't have a spouse, so easily and so quickly, we can say you alone are God in a worship song, but then the minutes of our life, the hours of our life, the evenings of our life are consumed by these feelings of loneliness and how different our life would be if we were matched up with a companion, if we were married. And we find ourselves in this place of, as much as we would like to say I worship God, we worship the idea of a potential spouse. The same thing can happen with kids, especially if you're dealing with infertility. You can find yourself in this place, man, if we just had that kid, we would be in the place that we need to be. That would answer the questions of can I, will I fulfill what I believe God has said about my life? So our devotion just kind of leaks out. My guys talked about camp up here, and I will tell you this. Uh, you know, you can raise your hand. How many of you guys of you have ever been on a camp high before? Do you know what that is? And I'm not talking about marijuana. I'm talking about <laughs> like the actual experience that you get when you go away to camp and you feel closer to God than you've ever felt because so many distractions have melted away. You've got 600 other teenagers your age that with your style that look and sound and feel like you and they're worshiping God at the top of their lungs. There's something about that that just seems to melt away the difficulties and increase your devotion to the Lord. And what starts to happen is then you come down the mountain. Right? It's every camp in the mountains. You come down the mountain and real life hits and you start to see that devotion just leak out. You could look at that and say, camps are flawed because they present a, a flawed version of reality. And I, I, actually, I actually think that they do something really special to show us what reality can look like when we live fully devoted to God. When we do the hard work of cutting away the distractions, when we discipline ourselves to see the Lord in the midst of the difficulties of life, our devotion can transform our experience. So I want to be a people that are devoted to the Lord. This is what Jesus said to a rich Whoa! I've already been up here 18 minutes, guys. I've got to speed this up a little bit. I apologize. <laughs> Sometimes the clock is just not your friend. <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh, my word. The devotion. It's not good. All right. Um. Okay, Matthew 19, 16 through 22. Uh, man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. The young man said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these I've kept. Got it, Jesus. What else do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. There are moments in our lives where our devotion is tested. You get, you get the report that you're not able to have children. Devotions tested. The person that you think you're going to be married to breaks up with you. Your devotion is tested. The house that you thought you had locked in falls out of escrow. Your devotion is tested. These are moments where Jesus presents us this opportunity to say, Am I enough? And we have to determine in those moments, yes or no. Jesus enough? I, 
I divide. Here's where I think, ah, I'll circle back to that. I'll circle back to, to where we're gonna go with devotion at the end. Let's talk about being a dependent people. One of the things that's becoming increasingly apparent is that to be a godly people in a corrupt world, we have to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. This should have been obvious all the way along, but for a good stretch of time in our country, the, the culture sort of pointed in the direction of being a, they call it a Judeo-Christian worldview. So the essential morality that was built through the Jewish and then Christian teachings of the Bible were considered the worldview that we operate off of. So the commandments that Jesus said in that quote, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, those things, they make up what it means to be human, and we start to see the world through that lens. Not every culture has those same values. So to call this a Judeo-Christian worldview, these are worldviews built off of Jesus and the teachings of the Old Testament. That's starting to chip away. And some people, that's creating some panic. It's creating some panic that the world doesn't think the way that I think anymore. They don't hold to the same values. They don't have the same morality. They might have a morality that says something is right, and I now, because of the scriptures, have a morality that says that same thing is wrong, and we're getting to this very uncomfortable place. And a lot of times, we don't know how to live because our whole existence has been built up in that one-directional idea of what is right and what is wrong. And now that is evaporated. How do you go through this life and make the hundreds of decisions that are needed every single day to stand confidently and firmly on Jesus and to live a life of purpose and mission and to grow in character and to be faithful to the convictions that God has laid on your hearts? How does a person do that? And the answer is not getting caught up in the direction of culture. That is not a possibility. And honestly, it never really was, but it felt a bit more comfortable for a long time. The answer is increasingly growing our dependence on the Holy Spirit for how to live our lives, how to respond in situations, how to think through things, how to gather and be with one another. We need the Holy Spirit. Paul writes this to the Galatians, chapter 5, verse 26. It says, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So think about that just for a moment. If we, it says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So if you live by the Spirit, meaning you're a follower of Jesus, because if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. So if you live by the Spirit, there's a task, there's a to-do. The Holy Spirit doesn't automatically transform things. Paul's identifying there's actually a little bit of a difference here. If you have the Holy Spirit, something else has to happen. You keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Where he goes, you go. And you listen and you look for how the Holy Spirit is moving and leading in any given situation. Respond in obedience. Acts chapter 8, verse 29 says this. The Spirit said to Philip. Okay, so there's a context here. We'll get to it when we get to Acts. But Philip is an evangelist, and he's down in the desert, because that's where Jesus told him to go. And he's waiting, and he sees a chariot roll by, an Ethiopian eunuch in that chariot. That's hilarious. Talk to you. All right. So he sees this scene happen, and the Holy Spirit said to him, go over and join this chariot. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 30, it says, and Philip ran to him. The Spirit said, go to that chariot. And Philip ran. Partly because I'm guessing the chariot was faster than him. So he had to, to get to it. That's, that's fine. But I think there's something there about Philip's response. This is what it would look like for us to grow dependent on the Holy Spirit. The Spirit says go to the desert, go to the desert. You may not see immediately why the Spirit said go to the desert. You're looking around and waiting, and the chariot rolls by, and the Spirit says go to the chariot. Instant, rapid obedience to the Spirit of God. That's how we can live a godly life 
in a corrupt world. Instant, radical obedience to the voice of the Holy Spirit. We grow in our dependence on Him. And there's two key things to this. The first is we grow in our ability to hear and discern the voice of the Spirit. Okay, so things like what I did away in the desert, just maybe taking some time and opening up a journal and presenting yourself to God and saying, I want to strip away distractions. Hey, do not disturb on your phone or put it in your car or throw it off a cliff. Any of those three options are fine. And say, Lord, I want to hear your voice. Have your scriptures open and start reading through the Psalms, read through the book of Acts, read through the words of Jesus. Start to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you about your life, about the people you love and care about, about your leadership in the church, about the mission that you're on. This isn't foreign, but it does take intentionality. It's not unattainable, it's yours for the taking. So the first thing is that we hear and discern, we cultivate our ability to hear and discern the voice of the Spirit. The second side of growing our dependence on the Holy Spirit is to live lives that if the Holy Spirit didn't produce strength and power and words, things would go very wrong. Sometimes we have, uh, we tend to sanitize our lives in such a way that we don't actually need the Holy Spirit. We can build our rhythms in a way that there's not great boldness that's required, there's not great uh, intuition that's required. We don't, we're not on the front lines. We pulled ourselves back from the front lines of mission, and so there's not a great need for the Holy Spirit to empower us, to speak through us, to embolden us, and to give us courage for the moment. So one of the things is to present yourself. Put yourself out there. Speak to people that don't know Jesus. Tell them that you do know Jesus. People are in the world that, that don't know the Lord and you hear them going through difficult times. So walking away and trusting that they'll deal with their therapist, sit down with them and say, I'd love to hear how you know. I'd love to be in your feet. I may not know everything. You can say or not say, I have the Spirit of God, and maybe I can help you. You don't have to say that if you don't want to, but you have the Spirit of God, and you can help them. You start to become a presence in their life. I invite, I know the invitation thing might feel strange to you, but you can invite them to your community group or to your church. You can give them access to the things that give you life and that equip you. People can't be exposed to those things and be stirred and shaped. But if you're living a life that's out there, the Holy Spirit meets us in those places. And we see that throughout the scripture. Throughout the scripture. A group of teachers and prophets start fasting and praying and worshiping at the church in Antioch. And the Holy Spirit there says, set apart for me, Saul and Martins, the work to which I call them. They present themselves. We want to fast and pray. We want to hear from the Lord. We want to see what he has for this church. We want to get together and contend for the things of God. And God speaks. All right, watch this. And sends Solomon out on a life of mission, carrying the name of Jesus to unknown lands. It's being independent people. Okay, let's talk about being a stirring people. And this language comes from Hebrews 10 24. It says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. We talked to Hebrews a few years back and studying this. Uh, the, the word that is used to describe stirring one another up is the same idea as sandpaper. It's actually like agitating each other to loving good works. It's taking something that, that needs to be refined and doing the hard work of refining it. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, let's stir each other up to loving good works. And sometimes we can feel like that's cheerleading or, or encouraging and saying, go get them. It's awesome. You're good. You've got this. But other times we need to understand that to stir each other up is to look each other in the eye and say, you're not living with courage right now. Go. Be bold. We're with you. But the Lord has something more for you to step into right now. 
hey, there's this character issue in you that's preventing you from being fruitful and effective in your work for the Lord. If you were to address that and deal with that, it would shape a different future than you're dealing with in your present. That's being a stirring people. There's a great proverb that you might be familiar with. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. There's a, a theologian named Tremper Longman III. Is there a better theologian name than Tremper Longman III? Uh, he writes this about this passage. He says, In the context of the book of Proverbs, this in the first place likely means mutual instruction in matters of wisdom, which would help a person navigate life successfully. It would certainly include receiving and giving correction to foolish behavior and speech. In this way, the friends could avoid making the same mistake in the future. The wisdom enterprise is a community effort. Being a stern people is understanding that actually we are genuinely better together, thank you, Brian, than we are on our own. Brian got me a shirt for my birthday that says better together. It's very kind of I think it was on principle, maybe, but it's still very kind of. <laughs> We're genuinely better together than we are on our own. We actually need each other. It's why we, again, I said this last week, I'll say it again, it's why we do community groups. It's because this is one thing, Rob said this a couple weeks ago, this is one thing where we come into a room, you hear me teach, you could take it or not take it, and we would never know. Your life could be radically transformed, or you could just forget it the minute you walk out into the blaring sunshine of our patio, and it just like men in black wipes your memory clear, and you never think about it again. And we would never know. But in community, there's that moment to circle back to each other and be face to face and say, what are you doing about being a devoted person? How are your affections split? And then we have to answer those questions and say, honestly, my affections are small. I'm devoted to more things than just Jesus, and it's wearing me down. In those community places, we can stir each other up. And the text of Hebrews 10, 24 says, stir each other up to love and good works, because the reality is, love in this world is not our natural instinct. It's not what we naturally do towards other people. And good works, meaning blessing this world and building it up and letting them see and experience the grace of God through our kindness and our generosity and our faithful living. Those things are not natural and we need to stir each other up to live differently because honestly this life is difficult and we need each other to refine each other. And lastly, being a sent people. We talked about this a lot in the last few weeks. You can still see our maps on the wall. Those are from our message in Romans 15. I would encourage you to go and uh, listen to that message if you don't know why those maps are on the wall. It was, a, it was a, a good opportunity for us to think about what it means to be a sent people. But we have some fundamental beliefs as a church about who you are and what your purpose is here. Jesus said in John 20, 21, and he said this to a small group of disciples in his, in a, you know, in a room. This was after the resurrection. He said this to his disciples. He said, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. That's why we talk about uh, the kingdom of God being an apostolic presence. We're a sent people, a sent presence. The word apostle means sent ones. And so we're a part of an apostolic Work. We're sent into this world on purpose. Okay, we've talked about this a number of times. The Second Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, or some versions say compels us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live, that's you and me if we've said yes to Jesus, might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was lived. This is us. This is Paul saying in the Corinthians when he said to the Galatians, when he said, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. I'm here for a different reason. Guys, 
I know this might sound blunt, but if we were here for eternal life, and that was our primary reason for following Jesus, you just wrap this all up right now. Just go all out on a cruise boat, just sink the cruise ship, and start eternity today. why we would call on people who are dealing with self-harm and the idea of suicide, why would we say no to that? Why would we encourage somebody to find help and steer their life away from those thoughts? Because that's not what God has invited us into. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come to give you life and life Abundant. I want you to feel humanity like it was meant to be felt, full of the presence of God. Part of a story that invites you into something of meaning and purpose and significance. You are here because God has something explicit and specific for you to carry out. That's why you're here. Here on purpose, and it's to be a sent one. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live because Jesus says, I have a calling on your life. I want you to carry it out. I have purpose for you. Tasks, directives. I've put people in your life. I've given you education and experience. Placed you in Southern California. We've talked about this a ton. You're not here on accident. The last couple of years have shown us if you wanted to move out of state, y'all would have, but you're still here. We take that. We take that. I'm dead serious when I said that. Our elders take that as we know who we can build with now. There, there was a test of the last couple of years that if you wanted to leave, you had the easiest way to get out of here. But if you're still here, you're here on purpose. You like this place. So, a sense of calling here, a sense of purpose for being in Southern California. Yeah, maybe it doesn't feel good. It's like a jacket that doesn't fit. It's like, this is not my people. This isn't my place. Sure. But we're not in this world to find a jacket that fits. The only jacket that fits is our eternal kingdom with Jesus forever. We're here in this world to be uncomfortable for the purpose of people knowing and experience Jesus Christ. That's it. So of course you're going to live somewhere uncomfortable. Of course you're going to live somewhere that doesn't feel like it fits. And Jesus says, well done. Now let's get to work. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. He commissions us into this life to carry his name. Some of this is understanding, just wrapping our heads around being a sent people. But then some of it's the equipping aspect of it. What does it look like for us to have strategic conversations with people that don't know Jesus? How do we lead businesses in this world that, that thrive in demonstrating integrity and character and bring the name of Jesus into a hurting and broken world? How do we do life in such a way that compels people to ask about the hope that we have? Being a sent person reformatting the why you're here and how you're going to live. So now I'm going to ask the question, what if we were all in on these things? We talked about this at Easter, carried a ownership around up here for about 45 minutes, and, uh, and talked about what it, what it would look like for us to go all in. First, we talked at Easter about Jesus being all in on us, demonstrating what he has done to show that. And we flipped that around and said, okay, so now what does it look like for us to go all in? Let's talk about that. Ephesians 4.1, Paul writes, and he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. I just don't know. Guys, I'm in jail for the Lord, and I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the chief and calling. Think about God's message believe the Holy Spirit authors the scriptures through human authors. Okay, so these are the 
inerrant, infallible, authoritative words of God himself, writing a letter to you, saying, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you call. What if you were to say yes to that? Peter writes in 2 Peter 1 8 about how if we have these qualities and they are increasing, this is week three, we'll talk about this in a few weeks, but if, if we have these qualities of Jesus and they're increasing, they will keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful in our knowledge of Jesus. Essentially, Peter's writing to us and he's saying, guys, I've got the secret to effectiveness and fruitfulness in your knowledge of Jesus. And just flip those words around. Peter is telling us how to be effective and fruitful. My guess is that none of us want to sit around and be ineffective and unfruitful. Do you know why the story that I told at the beginning about going to see AC Milan versus Juventus, like why did my boys start going out and practicing soccer the minute we got home from watching those players? It's because they dream about one day being on that field. It's just, it's something that they have. And I, you know, whether we breathe life into that or not is, is somewhat irrelevant for the conversation, but just in them, at the ages that they're at, they dream about being on that field, and they know, after they've seen it, if I want to get there, I can see the gap between me and them. And I know that if I want to fill that gap, it's going to take more than soccer practice twice a week. I'm going to actually have to go If we were to go all in on being devoted people, dependent people, stirring people, and sent people, things start to change. We actually start to see growth. We start to see a different view than you did than you were a year ago. You'll start to see progress. As your devotion to God grows and the, the things of this earth burn away, melt away, disappear, and your devotion to the Lord increases, it actually makes you a different person in those other places. Being a devoted person is an interesting testimony in this world because there's just not a lot of people that are devoted to much. There's not a lot of people that carry conviction, the bigness and the awesomeness of being children of God. It actually looks a little bit strange to be a devoted person. Being a dependent person breaks into this world in a unique way because the Holy Spirit starts to open up doors that you wouldn't see, you wouldn't know about. Think about Philip and that, that, that story of the Spirit saying, I want you to go to the desert between Gaza and Jerusalem. Go hang out there for a minute. Guys, we don't see the doors that the Spirit is going to open. We can't see them. So it wasn't like, oh, that's for the Ethiopian communicates. Sure, I'll go there. He doesn't think that way. He doesn't respond that way. He just says yes to the Holy Spirit. And as the chariot goes by, even still, Philip's not like, that's what I'm here. So here you go. The Holy Spirit says to him, go to that chair. That's why I'm here. He runs. Being a dependent person on the Holy Spirit, you are going to see doors open. And here's the cool thing about the Holy Spirit opening doors. is when he opens those doors, there's so much more fruit in those things than when we just start kicking doors open and doing whatever we want in the world. When we follow the Spirit of God, there's fruit in those places. That's what he does. And we're stirring people. I've said this a bunch of times. We're not here to just be nice to each other, to be a pleasant place for people to show up for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. I'm relatively uninterested in that. I want you to be pleasant to each other. I'd love you to greet your time, say hi to each other, and that kind of thing. Pleasant dreams are good. But that's not what we're here. That's not our purpose. We're here for a high call of discipleship to say yes to the big sin of Jesus. And I need you, and you need me, and you need each other, and each other needs you. 
selfish and it's affecting me. I am feeling stuck in my life and I can use your voice to help me move out of it. Hey, I really struggle to love these people. They get on my nerves. I want to walk away from them every time I see them and I need your help to help me love them. Hey, when you said that thing, it actually it turns people off to Jesus. It doesn't draw them in, it turns them away. That's those kind of things that should be crying about. That's stirring each other up. You might be thinking, ah, that's pretty invasive. I don't really want people having that kind of access to my life. And I will be honest, maybe you're on a journey of finding out if Jesus is for you. And, and in that sense, I want to say, please keep pursuing Jesus first. Because a lot more stuff makes sense when we say yes to Jesus. But if you've already said yes to Jesus, you have said yes to opening up your life to all kinds of things. You said yes to a church. You said yes to the Spirit. You said yes to being a part of the body where you can't function on your own. You need the other interconnected body parts all functioning properly in order for you to be built up in love. You said yes to be in the face of life and being a Christian. Okay, that's uncomfortable, that's fine, but deal with your yes. Own that you said yes to Jesus, and that comes with significant implications. But I will tell you this. We're in a world that does not deal with that degree of intimacy and authenticity. We're in a world that doesn't know how to do community, doesn't know how to do friendship, doesn't know how to do partnership, doesn't know how to do marriage well, doesn't know how to do parenting well. I know those are broad, sweeping assessments, but it's not hard to make those broad, sweeping assessments when we look at our world. We look at our world and we, our hearts break with compassion because they are sheep without a shepherd. We look at this world and we feel the loss of people not having what they need. We don't look at this world and think, oh, they're fine without us. And so when we live this stirring life, we actually put on display something that people, whether they know it or not, they do need it, and many of them know it. And if they become honest with themselves, they can actually see what they're longing for in you and the community around you. It's beautiful and compelling. And lastly, if you go all in as a sent person, I will tell you this. I, I've said this from day one. We are not in Anthem Church to grow Anthem Church. And I, let me tell you this. We're not anti-growth as a church, but it's not our end game. We're not here to max out services. We're not here to blow the walls out and get this building as big as we can get it for the purpose of making a big church. If you've ever heard that, it's a very simple cliche, but Jesus said, you make disciples, I'll build my church. Just the, the difference there is you, you're, on, you're on mission, you go make disciples, that's your focus, I'll take care of the church, I'll build that up. It's just a simple switch, we don't build the church. That's not, we're not putting in strategies to just try and make this place bigger. That being said, if you go out as a sent person, uh, this room will not hold the people that are hungry to say yes to Jesus. And two and three and four and five gatherings. And so we plant churches. We're starting community groups. We, we will start more gatherings. We're happy to, to continue to grow and, and equip whatever saints God entrusts to us. We will keep going and we will keep growing, keeping our eyes on Jesus and equipping the saints in the things that he has asked of us to do, we will keep doing that. Whatever the size of the body that God entrusts to us, we're happy to continue to press into these things, but I'm saying more on your end, if you live as a sent person, the kingdom of God in the Canaan Valley will increase. Meaning the presence of Jesus will increase. We're gonna get a baptism on Tuesday night. We're gonna have those on fives and tens and the twenties and the fifties and the hundreds when you live as a sent person. When you say yes to going out in this world, people are going to see Jesus in you and say, yes, I want that. And the walls of any church in this community will not be able to hold the fruits of God's people saying yes to being a sent people. I believe that with every fiber of my being. 
to be a sent person means that you're going out into this community and you're saying yes to the Holy Spirit. I will be bold. I will introduce Jesus. I will invite people into my home. I will invite people into my church. I will invite people into my community. I will encourage them to consider who Jesus is. I will carry the name of Jesus into every environment that God has entrusted to me. Guys, if we go all in on these things, this church will be a different kind of church. Give me one second to find a uh, quote here. John Wesley said this. <laughs> John Wesley's funny. I mean, he's been dead for a couple hundred years, but he was funny when he was alive. <coughs> he said this, or at least it's attributed to him. Set yourself on fire with passion, and people will come from miles to watch you burn. <laughs> being all in on Jesus that will capture this city, this county for the name of Jesus. That's what we're after. And we are here to equip you and our teams and whoever God entrusts to us to be on fire for Jesus carrying his name into this place. You know our agenda. This is what we're after. We want you to go all in with us. Lord, would you uh, stir in us something great? What a response to you, a, a yes to you, a readiness to receive all that you have, a hunger for our God. Even as I've been teaching today, I pray that you would be uh, bringing things into the minds of the people of this church. Things to, to cut away, like the pruning of a rose bush, just stuff that needs to be cut out of our life to maximize the, even the beauty of our life. Or bring to mind the people that you put into our life to know your name. The people in our community that we can both stir and be stirred by even to remember this place. And I do pray even now as we respond in worship that part of our, our, our time here would be practicing being devoted people. Practicing being dependent people. What does spirit-filled worship look like? Spirit-filled prayer. What does it look like to be a spirit-filled member of the body of generosity and we let those things inform how we respond why would you do that in us today we love you Jesus and we praise you and we pray amen